Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month... We'll hear about TGFs, or terrestrial gamma-ray flashes, and how their detection by the Fermi Space Telescope could help us to learn about antimatter-generating storms down here on Earth. These TGFs are somehow caused by lightning in a way we don't understand. They're being caused by very strong electric fields that the thunderstorm somehow creates, so we hope that this will all become clues and the TGFs tools that we can use to understand these phenomena. And I'll find out how we study the remains of the very first stars, the stars that ended the dark ages of the universe. Plus, news of the largest colour image of the sky ever made, the role of Jupiter in deflecting asteroids from Earth, and the incredible and erratic behaviour of red dwarf stars. And of course, Carolyn Crawford, Dominic Ford and Andrew Ponson will be answering your space science questions. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. As always, we'll start with a roundup of this month's news. Andrew, what's caught your eye? Well, a whole load of stories have come out this month from the annual meeting of the American Astronomical Society, which was taking place in Seattle. And the one that caught my eye is about the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, or SDSS. Now, this is a a project to map out the night sky, which began in the year 2000. And it's already gone through two distinct phases, which took it up to 2008. And during those phases, it measured information on one billion galaxies, 100,000 quasars, in addition to something like 500,000 stars in our own galaxy. And it did that by covering only 20% of the night sky. Now, on the back of that, in 2008, it entered a third phase. And this month, we've heard about the first results from that phase. Now, there are an awful lot of different projects in this uh, Sloan Digital Sky Survey. But one of them is that they're now covering an extra 5,000 square degrees on the sky. So that means it takes the coverage of the night sky from something like a fifth in the older surveys to now more like a third of the entire night sky. But uh, perhaps more excitingly, it includes new improved measurements of the properties of objects both in the existing parts of the survey and in, in the new parts of the survey. So, for example, they've been performing so-called spectroscopy of fainter galaxies than they've been targeting before. And that's where light is split up into its different wavelengths or colours. And that gives us far more information on the galaxies that they're looking at than would come just from taking an image of those galaxies alone. 
So imaging really can only tell you numbers and, and shape, really, not a lot more. Yes, there, there are techniques to use images with just a tiny bit of colour information to get more details of uh, the source than you might expect. But to really get into the deep details of what's going on, you need this thing called spectroscopy, where you split up the light into all its different colours. Now, the, the news uh, coming out of this meeting is that the first catalogue of results uh, from this new third phase of the study has been released to the public. Uh, and it's really exciting. You know, anybody in the whole world can go to the Sloan website and get their hands on a database of, of the information they've been taking, which is really remarkable. The, the actual science that comes out of this uh, will be forthcoming. It, it's, it's not released yet. But the kind of thing we can expect to see coming in future months is new information on the way that the universe is expanding, for instance. And that, in turn, tells us more about the nature of dark energy. Thank you, Andrew. Dominic, over to you. An article in the December issue of Astronomy and Geophysics magazine looks into an interesting 50-year-old myth about the effect that the planet Jupiter has on the risk of asteroid impacts here on Earth. Now, one of the really interesting questions in planetary science at the moment is how typical our solar system is. So as we start to learn more about planetary systems around other stars, do we expect those to be like our own solar system or very different? And you may remember that Melvin Davies spoke to us back in August about the work that he's doing. Now, a related question is, does our solar system have any particular features that has made it possible for life to develop on Earth. And this is where this 50-year-old myth comes in, because the myth goes that Jupiter, as the most massive planet in the solar system, tends to give gravitational slingshots to asteroids and throw them out of the solar system so that they won't collide with the Earth, and that has reduced the number of asteroid impacts onto the Earth, and so has meant there have been fewer mass extinctions in the history of our planet. Now, interestingly, this myth never seems to have been actually scientifically tested. It sounds very compelling, but no one's actually put it to a test. In the new research by Jonty Horner and Barry Jones, they've done computational simulations, and they've found that there are two effects that Jupiter has. The first is that it stirs up the orbits of asteroids. So asteroids which were orbiting away from the Earth, not crossing its orbit, will be stirred up into different orbits that may then cross the Earth's orbit and collide with the Earth, potentially. And the other effect is that they can give gravitational slingshots to these asteroids and throw them out of the solar system, as the myth would predict. Now, which of these effects dominates depends on the exact mass of the planet Jupiter. If Jupiter is not very massive, it will tend to stir up orbits more than it will throw objects out of the solar system. If Jupiter is very massive indeed, it would tend to throw everything out of the solar system. And in fact, you find for the mass of Jupiter itself, it is having a more dominant effect in stirring up orbits than it is in throwing bodies out of the solar system. So if Jupiter were not there, we would have fewer asteroid impacts onto the Earth. So this myth seems to be completely incorrect. <laughs> so Jupiter is not our protector in any way whatsoever. In fact, it's, it's put life on Earth at risk many times over. It seems not, although it does have to be said this research is slightly artificial in that they are taking our solar system and they are changing the mass of the planet Jupiter within that solar system. 
Now, obviously, you would expect the solar system to have evolved quite differently if Jupiter weren't there or if it was a very different size. So they actually would have migrated to different places anyway and therefore Jupiter would probably have a different effect? Very probably, yes. Well, thank you very much. Carolyn, what do you have for us this month? Well, just while we're thinking about impacts, I thought I'd have a look back at uh, Saturn's moon Rio, which has been the subject of Cassini's latest fly past it just over the last week. It's gone to within 40 miles of the surface of Rhea. Now, Rhea is interesting. It's one of Saturn's larger moons and one of the outer ones in the Saturnian system. And it's mostly ice all round a sort of small rocky core. And when you look at the surface, it's completely pitted with craters upon craters. So, you know, Dominic's just been talking about impacts and collisions and the effect that Jupiter has. Well, the advantage of objects like Rhea, of course, is that they record more or less every impact that's ever happened on their surface. So like our moon, like Mercury, you can read their surfaces as a record of all the sort of debris and the collisions that have happened in that part of the solar system over the last billion years or so. And, you know, it makes a very interesting comparison to the moon or Mercury in that it's in the outer solar system to the inner solar system. That could be some of the constraints, maybe, that could be useful for that kind of study that Dominic was mentioning. But Cassini's returned some fabulous pictures. They just reduced some preliminary ones that have been released. And you can see all these craters. But I've also been fascinated to look at some of the ones where there are large, flatter areas of the moon. And it shows these deep, straight faults in the surface of the ice. And one can't help but be reminded of these sort of tiger stripes, these fissures in the ice on another of Saturn's moons, Enceladus, where these faults go through the ice down to what we think is a liquid ocean underneath. And there's matter seeps up and you get these plumes of uh, water ice and dust out into space. And it's just interesting to speculate that Rhea is a comparison moon to Enceladus, but one that's further out, that's cooler, doesn't have the warm core, but maybe has the same characteristics leading to these fissures. So it's very interesting for lots of reasons for looking at the surface. And of course, you know, we're waiting to hear what Cassini has to say about Rhea's newly discovered atmosphere. So there was suggestions last year that Rhea had rings around it which have now been discounted and instead we think some of the signal that Cassini received that they first interpreted rings is now due to a thin atmosphere around Rhea made of oxygen and carbon dioxide and so it'll be interesting to see with this very close fly past what Cassini has to tell us about this newly discovered atmosphere. Do you think this puts Rhea on equal footing or perhaps even even a stronger contender than Enceladus for somewhere to look for life? No, I think it's still going to be too cold. The interesting thing about Enceladus is it's closer towards Saturn. You've got the tidal tugging on the internal mechanism of the moon, making it much warmer at the core. So I think that's still a better bet. But I'm, I'm always, there's so many different things to be found on the moons around Saturn. You've, you've got Iapetus with its dark side and its light side. You've got Titan with its thick, smoggy atmosphere. And you've got Enceladus venting out this E-ring, creating this E-ring in, in, around Saturn. I just I think everyone we look at is fascinating for a different reason. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. Uh, Andrew, if we can come back to you, and uh, I believe this story is quite close to your heart. It is, yes. It's it's about the Planck satellite, which I've mentioned several times before on this podcast. I wouldn't want you to think I'm obsessed with it, but I am. Uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's a mission to measure the so-called cosmic microwave background. That's literally the, the echo of the Big Bang in greater detail than we've ever been able to measure it before. And it announced this month its first real science results. 
Unfortunately, those results are not on the cosmic microwave background. They're uh, on other sources uh, of light that kind of get in the way of seeing this cosmic microwave background. And the Planck uh, team are being very careful to filter out any trace of information on the actual cosmic microwave background from their results at the moment because they want to be sure they've, they've got that right before they, they announce uh, any information on the cosmic microwave background. Uh, we can expect to see that now. It's been pushed back even further than, than it was before. Sometime maybe January 2013, I think, is, is the date currently being mooted for that. Nonetheless, there's interesting stuff coming from this satellite already from looking at these sources that actually get in the way of, of seeing what it's really going after, which is the microwave background. So, for example, we've heard this month that Planck has detected a whole series of clusters of galaxies, and that's literally uh, big collections of, of galaxies that are at large distances away from us. And Planck has detected something like 189 of these, which uh, includes 20 which previously weren't known about at all. Uh, then there, there are a whole load of uh, other things that it's detected. There's stuff in our own galaxy, for instance, uh, including cold clumps of gas which are probably about to collapse into uh, new stars. But the, the thing that really caught my eye about this data, and it's probably just because I'm uh, a bit of a nerd and I'm interested in some of these details, is that um, about 15% of the data that this satellite's collecting is being lost to cosmic rays. And what happens is, is that a cosmic ray comes in and it strikes the, the satellite somewhere and the satellite actually warms up because of the energy coming from that cosmic ray. And the, uh, the fact is that the satellite has to stay very cold to take the kind of measurements it's taking. So while it's warm, it can't uh, carry on taking measurements. So they get what they call glitches, and that's removing about 15% of their data, far more than anybody anticipated. And if the incidence rate of cosmic rays was, say, three, four or five times larger, then uh, we'd be uh, sitting on a billion uh, euros of space junk instead of the most <laughs> exciting experiment ever created. And it turns out that, that people had simply underestimated the, this, this event rate because they hadn't taken into account that because of various delays, Planck was being launched at a solar minimum. And when the solar activity is at a minimum, the sun isn't pushing away all the cosmic rays which come from outer space. And so ironically, it becomes harder to uh, run good space experiments when the sun is not very active. So there's a sort of fascinating, almost disaster hidden away in, in these Planck results. But nonetheless, the, the bottom line is the experiment's working very well and uh, it's very exciting for the future. Wouldn't a more active sun also have warming effects that would reduce the amount of data you could collect? Well, actually, the, the experiment is very carefully designed to reflect away the radiation coming from the sun, whereas cosmic rays, being very energetic particles, are almost impossible to de deflect away. So actually, the overall effect of an active sun is a good one for these experiments. And in a sense, I guess they've been really unlucky that the current solar minimum lasted a lot longer than anyone expected. So it's something that I think even if they had taken it into account, it would be very difficult to anticipate this, this exception from the solar cycle. That's absolutely right, although they are now seeing a reduction in the, in the number of cosmic rays quite substantially, so the, the quality of the data is improving. Thank you, Andrew. Carolyn, science fiction fans will have been delighted this month to hear that there will be a new series of Red Dwarf, 
But we've actually got a new story about the real things. Yes, about real red dwarfs. Well, this is quite a nice story because we always like to consider, and in fact we can reflect on that having just heard Andrew, that we're quite lucky to live around a very quiet star. And this just lets us consider that maybe it's not just luck because new research out this week suggests that there are many other stars which are, are much more active than our sun. So producing stellar flares that you know unleash storms of high energy particles and if they impact on a planet they can disrupt that planet's atmosphere and also potentially the life of any inhabitants on this planet so let's go back to stellar activity all stars are very active when they're young and then they sort of settle down in their maturity but there are some that never outgrow this phase and they continue to produce sort of frequent and quite violent flares throughout their life And there's been a new survey actually taking a census of nearby stars and assessing this level of activity. And it's surprisingly suggesting that this smallest type star, these red dwarfs, are the most prone to behave in this way. Now, what I love about this piece of research is that the survey is actually to look for extrasolar planets. It's the Sagittarius window eclipsing extrasolar planet search. So in other words, it sweeps survey and it's meant to be looking for planets in orbit around other stars from the way that they periodically dim the light from the star as they pass in front of it but this signal that you get from an exoplanet crossing a star's disk can be mimicked if that star in itself is flickering with activity so changing in brightness or if they've got lots of magnetic storms and therefore spots on the surface cool dark regions that can temporarily dim the star and you've got to rule out all those options before you've got an exoplanet So the reason I like this current survey is they've used the data for the inverse problem. So Rachel Austin of the Space Telescope Science Institute and her colleagues have used this data set to look at the rate of activity in such stars. And they found out that these red dwarf stars are particularly active in this way. I mean, it's, and it's obviously going to be something to do with their internal structure. Now, all stars have like big streams and rivers of plasma that sort of rivers of ionized particles churning around under the surface and it's thought for red dwarf stars this depth of moving material is very deep under the surface and it creates this big magnetic dynamo and the energy is then released into the star's outer layers and it prompts these flares and these storms that come from the star and some of the stellar flares they've observed can increase the whole brightness of the star by about 10% and only last about 15 minutes incredible releases of energy So where it gets back to the science fiction, of course, is that this would be particularly bad news for any exoplanets in orbit around such stars. Red dwarfs have always been thought quite a good potential site for life if there happen to be habitable planets. I mean, there are a lot of ifs in this, but if there were habitable planets around red dwarf stars, these would be a very good bet because red dwarf stars have a very much longer lifetime than our sun. And with over 10 billion years to spare, they have a much better chance for any complex forms of life to have developed on any habitable planets. But it looks now like life wouldn't get much of an opportunity if it's been continually blasted by these storms of radiation. So it's disappointing news and it's got an extra impact because, again, a couple of months ago, astronomers found that red dwarf stars are far more common than we thought, about 20 times more common. And so it's going to be disappointing if we end up ruling them out because of this flaring activity from being potential sites for habitable planets or habitable planets that have developed life. So a lot of speculation there, but it's, sometimes it's interesting to speculate. Thank you, Carolyn. Dominic, uh, last news story for today. What have you got for us? Just after Christmas, the discovery of the 2000th comet to have been discovered by the SOHO spacecraft was announced. Now, this isn't a spacecraft that we've talked about on this podcast before, 
It was launched way back in 1995 and it's been working for over 15 years now. But this announcement is all the more remarkable because this is not a comet hunting spacecraft. This is a solar observatory which is looking at the outer layers of the sun and trying to look at what happens when the solar wind is produced by the solar corona and looking at what happens when the sun becomes active and produces coronal mass ejections, which are massive envelopes of material which are blasted out into the solar system. It's what's called a solar coronagraph, which is a specially designed telescope for looking at the sun, where you point your telescope at the sun, you block out the sun's light with a small disk, and because there's no atmosphere in the vacuum of space, there's no scatter, so once you've blocked out the disk of the sun, you can see very faint features which are very close to the sun on the sky and you can start to see the sun's outer atmosphere. But it's also turned out that there are families of comets, in particular a group called the Kreutz group, which are normally very faint, but occasionally they get very close to the sun, they're called sun grazers, and they become very bright momentarily. Normally you can't see them because they're so close to the sun when they become bright, but with a solar coronagraph you can start to pick them out. And what's been happening over the last 15 years is that all of the images from SOHO have been being put up on the web, and anyone can download them and look at them. And amateur astronomers around the world have been looking through these images to try and see comets. And some of the amateurs who've been doing this are incredibly dedicated to what they do, and they've discovered over 100 comets, some of them. And I have to say, I've looked at the data myself. Some of these objects are incredibly faint, and you really need to be quite eagle-eyed to pick out some of these comets. But what's happened is that really an incredible body of knowledge about comets has been accumulated. And I think I'm correct in saying that at the present time, over half of all known comets have been discovered by this way of amateurs looking at data from the SOHO spacecraft. And it's worth noting that if you go to the SOHO website, there are some lovely little movies that they they stitch together where you can actually see comets hurtling towards the sun or falling into the sun. It's, It's quite entertaining to watch. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Dominic. Now it's time for our as-yet-unnamed section of quick-fire astronomy facts. But this is actually the last time that it will go without a name, as we want you to pick our name for us. We've had lots of good suggestions, and I've put my favourites into a poll at thenakedscientists.com slash vote. And now it's up to you to decide which one wins. We'll announce your decision in next month's podcast. But now, everything you need to know about relativity. Relativity was born in 1905 when Albert Einstein published a seminal work titled On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies. As that name suggests, Einstein analysed the electronic behaviour of particles moving at high speed. But he realised that the implications of his theory extended way beyond that original motivation. In the same year that Einstein laid this groundwork for relativity... He also discovered a crucial foundation of quantum theory... Explained how a bit of dust moves around in the air by constant bombardment from microscopic air molecules... And used his new relativity theory to show that E equals mc squared. It was the lesser-known Hermann Minkowski who later showed that Einstein's ideas could be expressed in the beautiful mathematical language of space-time. Einstein went on to spend eight years worrying that Newton's laws of gravity were not compatible with Minkowski's space-time, ultimately leading him to his 1915 paper, which introduced general relativity, a new version of gravity. 
that was not only compatible with, but actually founded on Minkowski's idea of space-time. Einstein predicted a whole load of counterintuitive effects from his relativity theories. If you travel at 100 miles per hour for 100 years, your watch will lose 35 microseconds compared to an identical watch left stationary. But if you sit still for 100 years on a stepladder 100 metres tall, the tiny difference in gravity means your watch will gain 35 microseconds compared to an identical watch on the ground. So, clocks on high-altitude orbiting satellites should lose 7 microseconds per day because they're orbiting so fast. But should gain 45 microseconds per day because they're so high up. So an overall gain of 38 microseconds per day. A prediction that's been verified again and again in experiments and is actually used every time a satellite navigation system calculates its location. General relativity is the key building block of our modern understanding of space and the universe. It explains why Mercury's orbit does not quite agree with the prediction from Newton's gravity. It correctly describes how the path of light is bent when it passes near massive objects, everything from stars to galaxy clusters. It predicts gravitational waves, the existence of which has been indirectly confirmed by watching how the rate of pulsars changes with time. It also gives us a framework to describe the universe from a tiny fraction of a second through to today, 13.6 billion years on. For instance, describing precisely how the overall expansion of the universe is affected by the gravitational pull of matter within the universe. Leading to exact predictions which match the real universe in exquisite detail. But relativity can't be a complete theory of space-time and gravity. The combination the combination of Einstein's original relative theory with quantum mechanics gives quantum field theory the incredibly successful theory of fundamental physics. But the combination of general relativity with quantum mechanics leads to mathematical nonsense. Meaning that gravity can't be accommodated within quantum mechanics. Which troubled Einstein for the rest of his life. And has led to a myriad of speculative mathematical ideas like string theory and loop quantum gravity. None of which have yet been experimentally confirmed or rejected by cosmologists or physicists. There are even more fast facts on our site at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. If there's a topic that you would like to get the high-speed lowdown on, then do get in touch. Astronomy at thenakedscientists.com Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. We'll be hearing about the streams of antimatter created by lightning on Earth in just a minute. But first, Carolyn, Rianne Engelbrecht has emailed to ask how quickly gravity propagates. And if changes in gravity affect everything instantly, could we actually use it as a way to communicate faster than light? Well, this is an intriguing idea. So I just want to talk first about how fast gravity propagates, indeed how gravity propagates. And to do that, we're going to have to go back to Einstein's equations for general relativity, which have a very simple solution, which would suggest that gravity can be represented by gravitational waves propagating. So similarly in the way that light waves are created by electric charges in motion, you have an analogous gravitational waves that are created by masses in motion, and they can carry information about change in a gravitational field. So, again, this is look, looking at Einstein's ideas of gravity, where the force of gravity is due to the curvature of space-time. So space and time are warped by the presence of massive objects. And this warped, this distorted shape, is fixed around matter that isn't moving. 
But if that mass or matter starts to move around, the curvature of space-time will change and evolve, and these disturbances spread outwards like ripples on the surface of a pond, which actually isn't a very helpful analogy, because you've got to be clear that unlike other waves, gravitational waves do not travel through space-time, but they're actually the fabric of space-time itself oscillating and moving. And so, if you like, they're travelling distortions within the geometry of space itself. Okay, so this is a bit of a distraction. To go back to Rian's original question, as we understand it, these ripples expand outward from the original disturbance at the speed of light and certainly don't happen instantaneously and don't propagate faster than the speed of light. So I don't think that's going to be a useful way to communicate faster than light. Ripples in the fabric of space-time sound like very hard things to detect. Can we prove that they're actually there? Well, of course, this would be something we'd love to detect, gravitational waves, because how much gravitational radiation, if you like, is emitted by a movement of a mass is strongly depends on how large that mass is, how fast it's moving, and, of course, how far away you are from it. And so while objects on Earth can produce gravitational waves, the power of these is truly insignificant and nothing that we can detect. Waves only become significant enough that we have a hope to detect them in systems that are incredibly massive or they move at speeds close to the speed of light. And, of course, that's where astronomy comes in because that's the kind of environment where you have truly enormous masses travelling at enormous speeds and you produce enough gravitational waves that we might have a hope of detecting them in the near future. And astronomers would love to detect gravitational waves, not just to verify the predictions of general relativity that such waves should exist. It would be a very good way to test whether they can propagate as we think at the speed of light. For example, if a distant supernova goes off, do the gravitational waves from that arrive at the same time as the light signal from that supernova? That would immediately tell us that our understanding of this is correct. And in addition, it would be such a neat way to find information about matter in the universe because at the minute the only communication we get is light signals and how we interpret light signals. It would be fantastic if we could start to detect gravitational waves and have a completely different way of detecting matter in our universe. Thank you, Carolyn. Andrew, we've had a question from Russell who has spotted what seems to be an insurmountable problem with travelling at close to the speed of light. And it's one that was actually mentioned in the classic film Star Wars, where Han Solo says, without precise calculations, we could fly right through a star or bounce too close to a supernova. So, Andrew, help Han Solo out. Is it possible to plot a safe course if you're travelling close to the speed of light? Well, it becomes extremely, extremely hard. Um, Of course, as you said, we can't actually travel at the speed of light. So what we're talking about is what happens as you get closer and closer and closer to the speed of light relative to the other objects around you that you're going to be trying to avoid. Now, there are two basic difficulties in plotting this clear course. The first is that the effects of relativity mean that an awful lot of odd things are going to happen. And let's just analyse the most important of those weird effects from the perspective of somebody who's sitting inside a rocket that's getting closer and closer to the speed of light. The most noticeable thing for that person is that space seems to fold up in front of you. So something that was a million miles away when you were sitting at rest is suddenly only one mile away when you're going at 99.9999999999995% of the speed of light. 
So that means that as you get closer and closer to the speed of light, quite apart from the effects of whizzing through space so quickly, all of the objects in space are sort of scrunched up in front of you and it essentially becomes impossible to avoid them because there's just so many of them because you're scrunching up everything in space into a tiny distance right in front of your rocket. But perhaps an even more fundamental problem is that even if just one of these objects that, say, weighed just one gram, so relatively tiny, hits you, then you're in deep, deep trouble because as far as you're concerned, it's travelling towards you at almost the speed of light. So in the example that I was just discussing, if we had this one gram object and it hit you, it would be carrying about 10 to the 20 joules of kinetic energy. So that's equivalent to the energy of 25,000 megaton atomic bombs. And that energy has got to go somewhere, and most likely it would go into vaporising your ship. So the, uh, the, the long and short of this is it's going to be very, very hard. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, hopefully Russell won't be planning a trip at close to light speed anytime soon. But if he does, it's going to take him a long time to work out the right route to go. We'll be answering more of your questions later on in the show. But now, Louise Ogden reports on the strange beams of antimatter that stream out from Earth during thunderstorms and how an instrument on board the Fermi Space Telescope is helping us to learn more. The Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope was launched in June 2008 to observe the most energetic objects and events in our universe. The largest telescope of its kind, Fermi is equipped with two special instruments, the first being the Large Area Telescope and the second being the Gamma Ray Burst Monitor, or GBM. The latter can view the sky in all directions at once due to the highly penetrative nature of gamma rays. It was thought that the only dark part of the sky would be where the Earth was blocking the view of the GBM so scientists were rather shocked when they detected gamma rays coming from the Earth. These odd detections, known as terrestrial gamma-ray flashes, or TGFs, were first discovered by the Compton Gamma-ray Observatory in 1994. Michael Briggs, the principal research scientist at the Gamma-ray Astronomy Group at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, told me a little more about these gamma-ray flashes that originate from the Earth. They are intense, very short bursts of gamma rays lasting less than a thousandth of a second, and they've associated with thunderstorms and lightning. And with GBM, the Gamma Ray Burst Monitor on NASA's current Fermi satellite, we're also seeing TGFs. And we've, as of the end of uh, 2010, we've seen 130. And with this particular research, we focused on some unusual ones, which were much longer than the typical TGF. Michael Briggs has been particularly interested in these longer flashes and how they were created. It turns out that what Fermi is seeing is not gamma rays arriving at the telescope, but rather gamma rays being made inside the detector of the telescope. We focused in on the spectrum, and we discovered that they had a what we call a line in concentration of gamma rays at one particular energy, 500,000 electron volts, which is the signature of positron annihilation. When positron and electron combine, they convert to energy gamma rays, at this characteristic energy, telling us that the positrons were involved. The antimatter particles seem to be produced by thunderstorms in the Earth's atmosphere, which forces the positrons out of the atmosphere up into the magnetic field surrounding our planet. Because positrons are charged particles, they were channeled by the magnetic field lines around the Earth towards the telescope. This meant that Fermi did not even need to be directly above the thunderstorm in order to detect it. The event on 2009, December 14th, and Fermi was actually over the Sahara Desert, which 
of course, is not a location for thunderstorms, and it was connected by the magnetic field all the way to Zambia, 4,000 kilometers to the south, over the horizon, so there was no way that Fermi could have seen gamma rays from the TGF, and the electrons and positrons follow the magnetic field of the Earth to Fermi. Some of the electrons and positrons, of course, missed Fermi, since Fermi's pretty small, and continued past Fermi to northern Egypt, and as the field got stronger, they do what we call magnetically mirror, and they, that causes them to reverse direction, and they returned to Fermi and made a second peak. So we had a double peak TGF, which is another piece of evidence for this model of the particles traveling along the magnetic field. The strange thing is that TGFs have only been picked up by Fermi 130 times since its launch in 2008. Obviously, the telescope is pretty small compared to the size of the Earth, so many TGFs will go undetected, perhaps as many as 500 a day. We really don't know what's special about the lightning that makes TGFs, how it's different, if it is different from other lightning, and also what's different about thunderstorms that make TGFs. There's really quite a lot of completely open questions about TGFs. We think we understand some aspects like how the particle acceleration is taking place, but other basic questions are, are really wide open. The significance of this is that we still don't really understand what's going on when lightning strikes. There are hundreds of thunderstorms every day, and yet only a few seem to create the longer TGFs that are associated with positron emission. What we don't know is how these thunderstorms manage to act as powerful particle accelerators that beam positrons and electrons into space. These TGFs, are, I think, are somehow caused by lightning in a way we don't understand. They're being caused by very strong electric fields that the thunderstorm somehow creates, so we hope that this will all become clues that, and, and the TGFs tools that we can use to understand these phenomena. That was Michael Briggs from the Gamma Ray Astronomy Group at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, who has a paper in press for the journal Geophysical Research Letters about his work on positron electron beams generated by terrestrial lightning. That was Louise Ogden, and we'll have more from her next month. Dominic, could you help us with this question from Andrea Lewis in Tasmania? She said that she knows the moon doesn't have an atmosphere and so the dust doesn't get blown about like it does here on Earth. But why doesn't the solar wind blow about dust on the moon? The solar wind, of course, is generated in the upper layers of the sun's atmosphere, the corona, the part which is imaged by the SOHO spacecraft, in fact. And it consists of a stream of positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons which are spewed out from the sun at a variable rate but travelling at very high velocity and with a rate of, of, on average, something like 2 million tonnes per second. Now, these are very harmful particles. They can break apart molecules and cause chemical reactions to occur. So, for example, in a spacecraft, they can change the characteristics of the semiconductors that make up the spacecraft's computer systems and potentially render those computers useless. And in animals, they can break apart proteins and damage genetic information and and potentially eventually cause cancer. So on Earth, we're very lucky that we're protected by the magnetic field of the Earth. These particles don't get through to the surface of the Earth. And so life has been able to develop on the Earth. On the moon, Andrea is completely right to worry about the solar wind. There is no magnetic field on the moon and the moon also receives minimal protection from the Earth because it's very rarely within the Earth's magnetosphere. But these particles have such low masses 
that although they can collide with molecules and break them apart, they have minute masses compared to those of dust grains. And so if a dust grain is impacted, it might break apart the individual molecules that make up the rock, but it would not have enough momentum to actually move a dust grain. That compares, that contrasts with the Earth, where you have a much denser medium, you have a much denser gas, and the bombardment of many air molecules at any one time with a dust grain can produce a big enough force to actually pick up a dust grain. The solar wind, by comparison, is very tenuous. You have a very small number of particles per cubic metre, and that means that you will only ever have one solar wind particle interacting with any given dust grain at any one time. So she's certainly right to think that the solar wind will interact with dust on the moon, but it's just that it won't interact in the same way that our conventional wind on Earth interacts with dust here. It will have changed the chemistry of the compounds that you see on the surface. It won't have transported material. Thank you, Dominic. Carolyn, we've had a a very intriguing question from David Crouch in South Africa. He points out that although the summer solstice is the longest day of the year, it's not actually the day with the earliest dawn. That comes some three weeks beforehand. The latest sunset is three weeks after the solstice. Now, it would seem perfectly logical and reasonable to assume that on the longest day of the year, you'd have the earliest sunrise and the latest sunset. So what's going on here? Well, yeah, this is a very good question. So well observed, Dave. Lots of brownie points for this question. Just to say that we've experienced this in the Northern Hemisphere recently as well in December with our winter solstice in that the shortest afternoon occurred before the solstice and the shorter morning after the solstice. In other words, the sunset starts getting later a couple of weeks before the sunrise starts getting earlier. And it's quite complicated. I mean, it's Everything in astronomy is complicated, but it's all related to the fact that the Earth moves around the Sun in an ellipse rather than a circular orbit. And therefore, it's got to obey Kepler's laws of planetary motion, which, as I'm sure you're all aware, state that if you imagine a line joining the centre of the Sun to the centre of the planet, as the planet moves around in its orbit, that line will sweep out equal areas in equal time intervals. And practically this means that in December, when the Earth is in the part of its orbits where it's closest to the Sun, it's also moving fastest in its orbit. And this means that the Earth also has to rotate just that little bit further to get to where the Sun is directly overhead again each day. And so you have this mismatch about the Sun actually not being overhead at noon. And this situation is in fact compounded by the fact that the Earth rotates about a tilted axis and the effect gets more pronounced at lower latitudes. So not only does it affect this mismatch of the shortest afternoon and the shortest morning with the solstice, certainly for winter for us, there are other effects because we're always told that the Sun is precisely overhead at noon on every day of the year. It's not true. It's only true for about four times a year. And you have this correction you have to make between the official clock time and maybe the time you might read from a sundial. And this is known as the equation of time. And it's, in fact, changing fastest at the solstices. Thank you very much, Carolyn. And thank you, David Crouch, for an excellent question. If anyone else has got any questions or comments for us, then you can get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. 
The first stars that existed in the universe, known as Population 3 stars, are something of an enigma. Hot, bright and short-lived, they were born when the universe was very, very different. Now, researchers at Cambridge University's Institute of Astronomy have identified and analysed the gas cloud left behind at the end of the life of one of these stars. I met PhD student Ryan Cook to find out more. We were searching for evidence for the first generation of stars and trying to understand this population of stars. Well, these stars were, were born 13 billion years ago or thereabouts. They live very short lives uh, of only a few hundred thousand years, maybe tops. With most stargazing, with most astronomy, we look at the light that comes from an object and we use that to try and infer something about its properties. Is this something we can do with the first stars in the universe? They can be imaged. Uh, You can look at them directly with a telescope, but the facilities that we require are only just coming online now. And even then, it's still perhaps a little optimistic. We can still uh, investigate this population today using a, a slightly different technique. We look for the signature that they left on the surrounding gas. And this gas... Uh, lay dormant for quite a long time and we can now uh, see this light against a more uh, against a brighter background source so you can think of this in the sense of someone shining a torch from the universe directly into your eyes and this little cloud that we discovered is between us and that torch and we're looking for the properties of the light that goes through that cloud So rather than looking at the light emitted by an object and learning about it like that, we're looking at the light that it absorbs as other light passes through it. What sources of light can you use and what are the signatures that you're looking for in that light? The first thing is we we need bright sources uh, and the best sources we know of at present is quasars. What we're looking for is the absence of light at very particular wavelengths which correspond to the, the atoms that are in that cloud. Measuring the strength of these, of these absorption signatures, how much light is taken away by these atoms, we can therefore infer how many atoms are in this cloud. So you can see roughly how much of what elements there are there. But what elements would you expect to see having come from one of these really early stars? I'm guessing it's not the same things that we would see in stars today. That's right, Ben. It's, uh, it, you're looking for the relative amounts of the different atoms in, in the cloud. And so you, you see quite a lot of the sort of the lighter elements like carbon and oxygen, but there's a, a deficit in heavier elements such as iron. Now, these heavier elements are actually made in stars. That's, that's where they come from. Throughout the evolution of the universe, different generations of stars will fuse together lighter elements into heavier ones. But if we're only looking at the end result, if we're only looking at what this star has produced throughout its lifetime, how can we find out or work out what it was actually made of in the first place? In, in this case, when we're looking at the first stars, we know what they contained initially because the universe only contained hydrogen and helium, and that's, that's what these stars formed out of. So if we use computer models to generate a star that contained only hydrogen and helium gas, we can follow its evolution, including its lifetime and its death, to determine what mix of elements were produced by the star during its entire lifetime. And when you do this for one of these very early stars, do you see 
the ratio of gases that you actually found in that cloud? More or less, yeah. It's There are a number of signatures that you need to look for in a cloud of gas to determine whether it's truly of this origin. But one of the, one of the distinct features is that from the first stars, you expect to see many more carbon atoms than iron. That's precisely what we have seen. Whereas in more typical stars, you might see the same number of carbon to iron atoms. So a modern supernova would release a very similar, very close ratio of carbon to iron. But it's only because these original stars, these very early stars, started with such basic building blocks, hydrogen and helium, that we know that we'd see far more carbon than we would iron. Yes, that's, that's one way to think of it, yes. Why is it important that we study these stars? Uh, we do see supernovae very regularly. There's lots and lots to study that we can definitely see and look at in the sky around us right now. Why is it important that we understand these stars that are clearly quite a, an effort and quite a struggle to actually study? <laughs> that's, that's quite true. They're important for a number of reasons. These first stars formed when the universe was cold, dark and boring from a chemical point of view, before the first stars existed, the universe only contained hydrogen and helium. After their existence, the universe became this wonderful mix of the elements that, that we see in the periodic table of elements. And it's from this mix that planets and, and, and stars and galaxies form. So it really set the initial conditions for the chemical evolution of our universe. These stars were very hot stars, and they formed when the universe was really cold. So this whole generation of stars heated the gas in the universe and brought an end to these dark ages. This is, as I understand it, certainly one of, if not the first opportunities we've had to look at the remnants of one of these stars in this way. But it is only one star. So what's the next step? Well, I, I think you've summed it up nicely there. It, it is just one object. And in order to study the entire generation of first stars. It wasn't just a single star, it was an entire generation. And so we need to study a sample of such things to try to understand better what happened in, this, in, in the dark ages of the universe. That's Brian Cook trying to shed light on the dark ages of the universe. Andrew, a few months ago we answered a question on Hawking radiation and the mechanism by which black holes evaporate. We said at the time that pairs of virtual particles, one normal matter, one antimatter, form spontaneously and usually just annihilate, but when it happens near the event horizon of a black hole, one can be pulled in while the other gets fired out. By that process the black hole appears to have emitted something, and in order to do that it must shrink. But we've had an email from David Walker... He understands that if an antimatter particle falls into the black hole, it will annihilate something inside the black hole and, and cancel out its mass. But what if the particle that falls in is normal matter? Wouldn't that make the black hole more massive? What he wants to know really is, is there any bias at the event horizon that prefers sucking in antimatter? Yeah, well, it certainly seems like there must be, doesn't it, for that explanation which Karen gave to, to be correct. Um, the, the difficulty with this subject is it's an incredibly hard subject, and so we have different ways of, of thinking about uh, uh, an, an explanation for what's going on, but in the end, it involves a lot of maths, and uh, it's 
isn't even fully understood by the people who are working on it. It links into something called the information paradox, which is where when you chuck stuff into a black hole, information about that stuff seems to be lost, but nobody's quite sure whether it really is lost. And is the information that you've chucked in matter really lost completely? So this is why all this stuff becomes extremely difficult. Nonetheless, we can take a step back and, and see if we can make some sense of it. The really concrete mathematical result that all of this is based on is the fact that if you um, write down a system of equations which represent a black hole which is of a steady size, so it's neither growing nor shrinking, and let that live in a complete vacuum so there are no particles of matter around it, then when you analyse that carefully using something called quantum field theory, you find it's actually mathematically inconsistent. It doesn't actually, the equations don't actually make sense. And you can only make the equations make sense by supposing it's not in a complete vacuum, but rather it's in a sort of bath of particles. It's actually surrounded by particles of a certain density. And it's the interpretation of that that gives rise to these ideas because the interpretation is that in that case it's been made consistent the the idea that it's staying the same size has been made consistent by the fact it's absorbing some of those particles that it's surrounded by but it must also be emitting an equal number of particles so the whole thing is overall on average not changing with time and everything becomes consistent So that's the mathematically concrete statement that all of this is based on, and that's what what Hawking's first analysis showed. But if we come back to this idea that in in the real universe, a black hole in the real universe must therefore be shrinking because somehow it's emitting particles, and then we try and ask again, how is it that it knows what type of particles to emit? One way you might resolve this question is by thinking about what actually happens to matter that falls into a black hole. Because we have discussed once, I think many months ago on this podcast, that if you're watching from the outside as matter falls into a black hole, you never actually see it get into the black hole. From from the perspective of somebody watching this going on outside, the matter gets closer and closer and closer to the surface or, or so-called event horizon of the black hole, but you never actually see it fall in. And the way that helps us in this case is because it does actually select a, a, a preference in the sense that if you now imagine these one one particle of antimatter and one particle of matter being created right next to this event horizon, it's very likely that the antimatter will annihilate with a piece of matter because uh, the matter is all sort of trapped there. It hasn't actually fallen in from, from the perspective of these particles that have been created just outside the black hole. So the antimatter actually annihilates with a bit of matter that's sort of trapped just outside the black hole and the bit of matter since there's not lots of antimatter hanging around the bit of matter has nothing to annihilate with so it's actually able to escape away because it is just outside the black hole now i hope that shed some light on it as i say nobody really knows a full answer to this but i think that's the kind of direction in which you have to look to start to understand it
Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, David, for your question. Finally, last question for this month, and it's my third mention of science fiction. I'm really sorry for going on about science fiction so much this month, but this one is inspired by the cartoon series Futurama. So, Dominic, can you help us with this one from Paul Miller? He said, in episode two, Fry and Leela outrun the sunset on the moon by hopping along, but how fast would you actually have to run to outrun the sunset on the lunar surface? It's always fascinating to think about how the sky appears on other bodies in the solar system. The moon, of course, orbits the Earth once every month, every 29 and a half days. And we also know that it always keeps the same face turned towards us. So that means it has to turn once on its axis every 29 and a half days. It's what we call tidally locked to the Earth. So that means that an observer on the moon sees the sky rotate once every 29 and a half days. And so a day on the moon lasts roughly 29 and a half days. So we can calculate how fast the sunset has to move across the lunar surface to that, for that to be so. And if we think about the lunar equator, we can work out the circumference of the equator by taking 2 pi and multiplying that by the lunar radius and then dividing that by 29 and a half days. And the speed you get is 10 miles an hour or that's 15 kilometres per hour. So you could quite comfortably run along and keep up with sunset or sunrise on the lunar equator. In fact, if you were at higher latitude, you'd have to run rather slower because the line of constant latitude at, let's say, 50 degrees north is shorter because you're closer to the lunar north pole and so you have a shorter circle to circle around the lunar north pole. Now, to compare that with what you'd have to do on the Earth you'd actually have to run about 100 times faster to keep up with sunset on the Earth. And that's because of two effects. It's because the Earth is a bigger planet and it's because the day is 30 times shorter for us on the Earth. There are also other fascinating things to think about on the Moon. For example, how the Earth appears to somebody who is on the Moon. And it turns out that because the same side of the Moon is always turned towards the Earth it means that the Earth never appears to move in the sky. It hangs there at about two degrees across, but it never rises or sets because you're always turning to keep it in the same place in the sky, even though the stars behind it are rotating once every 29 and a half days. So actually, outrunning the sunset on the moon is perfectly feasible and you'd have a nice view of the Earth while you're doing it. But you couldn't sleep. (laughs) So you need a lot of stamina as well and probably quite a lot of coffee. Thank you very much, Dominic. But that's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy. We'll be back next month, so if you've got any questions or comments for us, get them in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. And don't forget to place your vote for the name of the Fast Facts Roundup. You'll find all the suggestions at thenakedscientists.com slash vote. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, you can search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Music